1: Good morning, everyone. You are listening to the Master Gardener Hour, a one-hour show where we talk to garden professionals and gardeners from all walks of life. And my name is Kate Copsey, and I am the host of the show. And if you have questions about something in your garden, please post it on our Facebook page, and maybe we can answer the question on the air. This morning, we are going to be talking carnivorous plants with Paul Crawford, the owner of Texas Triffid Range. Good morning, Paul. Hello, ma'am. Yes, and uh, perhaps uh, we should start this. Uh, we should have probably done this nearer Halloween because I think um, the most famous triffid was uh, from the horror movie, The Day of the Triffid. So, can mm-hmm. I assume that most of your carnivorous plants are less harmful to humans and general lifestyles as that particular greenhouse plant? <laughs>
2: Well, I'm asked all the time if I have anything that's actually man-eating. I'm going, no, not unless
1: you chop that person up into very small pieces. <laughs> and, and do people still generally remember that film? <laughs> uh, actually, uh, what really
2: surprised me, was, or keeps surprising me, is the number of people who are familiar with the original John Wyndham novel and who saw the uh, BBC miniseries from 1980. And I have to admit, I enjoyed that one quite a bit myself, just because, among other things, the trypids there were actually based on real carnivorous plants and were really nicely done.
1: Oh, and um, I, I know that it was a horror movie and it kind of attacked humans, <laughs> which mm-hmm. I guess um, some maybe somebody grafted them or whatever. But, um, but let's talk um, a little about some of the basics of carnivorous plants. I mean, what exactly are they and how... Do they function? Because it's not just um, the triffids. I mean, there are other sorts of um, carnivorous plants as well.
2: Oh, yes. Right now, depending on who you talk to, uh, there are about 800 species of carnivorous plant known worldwide, including quite a few that are referred to as proto-carnivorous. The actual definition of a carnivorous plant is a plant that attracts, captures and digests insects and other animal prey. And in this case, they're doing this because, without exception, they're all living in areas that are very marginal in nitrogen. And as opposed to uh, working with uh, symbiotic bacteria the way clover and mesquite does, in this case, uh, these plants let the nitrogen come to them. The vast, vast, vast majority of them are uh, catching uh, insects, usually nothing larger than a mosquito. However, there are some species that will catch prey a little bit larger and uh, so far, the, uh, the record catch, as it were, is a uh, plant, a, an Asian pitcher plant out of the Philippines named after David Attenborough that has a uh, capacity of approximately one gallon. It has been documented catching rats. However, uh, it apparently doesn't do that very often. And uh, many members of that entire genus have uh, even more bizarre ways of getting nitrogen than that.
1: Wow, that sounds like a fun plant to have, <laughs> boy! <laughs> it doesn't it have its moments, Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and was that a new one that was found, or is it kind of a, a well-established one? <laughs> this
2: one was a brand new one. It was uh, that's the I can actually credit a gentleman by the name of Stuart McPherson, who's honestly one of the well one of the most lively carnivorous uh, plant enthusiasts I've ever come across. I regularly joke no I, I I wanted to have him keep going this way, so I can ultimately steal his brain and eat it to steal his powers, but uh, realistically is that he 's traveling the entire world looking for carnivorous and proto carnivorous plant species to be able to photograph them in the wild to describe the conditions under which they 're living, and in his case, he had heard rumors for years of a a particularly giant carnivore living out on the uh, philippine island of luzon and he was actually able to take pictures of it in the wild and bring back samples for captive propagation there are actually a few carnivorous plant nurseries now that offer uh, what is re- officially referred to as nepenthes attenborough for sale
1: wow um and and so I'll do some of these plants um I always as- associate them with kind of um, shady areas, but do some of them kind of live in, in a ver- like most other sorts of plants, uh, have a variety of habitats from kind-, kind of cool weather to hot weather type of things?
2: Very much so. In fact, as I like to tell people, there, the automatic assumption is that most carnivores live in jungles. And as far as the Asian pitcher plants are concerned, That part is absolutely true. They thrive in uh, cloud forests and in jungles. Uh, However, uh, the vast majority of them are actually temperate varieties. As I like to tell people, there is more variety of carnivorous plants as far as the the different groups of plants around Tallahassee, Florida, than almost anywhere else on the planet. Because there you have a significant number of uh, different groups of carnivores all living within the same area around Apalachicola National Forest, just outside of the Tallahassee Airport.
1: And, and so is it areas that maybe um, have kind, kind of lots of insects flying around, um, which they can catch rather than in a garden setting?
2: Well, pretty much, uh, let's see, uh, they don't need to get that many insects. One of the uh, presumptions on carnivores, unfortunately, and this is what usually leads to quite a few of them dying, is the presumption that they need to be, they're eating for energy, the way we animals talk. So in that case, the presumption is that they need to catch a lot of insects. Now, in this case, they're only doing it for enough nitrogen to be able to survive in areas where other plants can't manage. Sometimes it can be down to individual atoms of nitrogen and phosphorus necessary to collect it off of their insect prey to be able to grow in a particular area. And then there's an entire group, uh, among other things, the uh, bladderworts, which are one of the most common groups of carnivores found worldwide that, for the most part, are eating microscopic organisms such as nematodes. I like to refer to them as guilt-free carnivores because you never, ever have to worry about feeding them. Okay. Every last last handful of soil has millions of nematodes in it, so these uh, plants are not going to run out of food anytime soon
1: and And so, what kind of general if we buy one of these plants, what kind of general um garden environment soil wise um, do they do they need um, do they need soil at all, or should they be are they more considered house plants when people buy them? No,
2: actually, they do very well outside in fact, uh, the North American pitcher plant, Saracenia, does very very well in bog gardens and in container gardens. Uh, The whiskey barrels, for instance, make a great container for them. The absolutes with the vast majority of species that people are going to come across is that they require very acid, very low uh, salt soil. Uh, Pretty much uh, in the wild, most of their soil is going, or most of their uh, growing medium is going to be a combination of sphagnum moss and uh, silica sand. Nothing in the way of uh, dissolved materials or, uh, excuse me, dissolved salts in the area. In fact, I recommend very highly also that anybody you know, taking care of carnivores tries to stick with rainwater or distilled water only because in most places, municipal water has just enough salts to make things interesting. We're able to go ahead and process it. In fact, uh, with standard bottled waters, salt is usually added to go ahead and improve the flavor because distilled water is very flat-tasting. The problem is is that the plants have no way to be able to deal with that extra amount of salt. And it can build up in the soil for a while, and the plant will be fine, and then suddenly it will die with no warning.
1: <laughs> I think a lot of plants have a tendency to do that. Um, oh, yes. Yes. Um, so, um, do they, in, when you put them into a landscape, I mean, apart from grouping like plants together, um, do they shall we say, talk nicely to other plants. Do they fit into a general landscape garden in a way that maybe, say, um, other plants might?
2: Actually, yes. If you're uh, already working on a uh, pond area, that's going in and putting a bog garden in alongside. usually works very well. I once saw a beautiful arrangement here in Dallas with someone who had set up a bog garden right next to a koi pond with the idea that neither the twain would actually meet, but where they were close enough that the, uh, the uh, North American pitchers would rise up, well, sometimes as much as a meter tall, and really highlight the koi pond.
1: Oh, wow. That that would make quite a statement in the garden. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. Um, and I remember as a kid, um, we used... I, I don't remember ever having fish, but I seem to remember somehow we got a... I think it was a Venus fly, fly trap, which ended mm. up in, in an old fish tank. And my own kids went through a phase of wanting some of these uh, coniferous plants. But is there um, an increased interest in... In them because I've noticed a lot of trade shows lately. They have they have bog gardens and then they have carnivorous plants, and it seems like it's almost like kind of a new generation. People are really becoming fascinated with them more than in, in maybe the last 20 years. Uh, actually,
2: closer to uh, more than in the last 100 years. During the Victorian period, there was a huge fascination in carnivorous plants, particularly Asian pitcher plants. Sundews and butterworks, and this was mostly due to Charles Darwin. He wrote a uh, what, for a very long time, was the authoritative guide on carnivorous plants. He was actually fascinated by them, particularly the uh, common uh, English sundews that were growing all around his house. He was, as he referred to uh, the genus Drosera, as one of the most wonderful plants in the world, and. He ended up starting a, quite a fad, uh, particularly as uh, plant collectors were starting to bring in new varieties into England. Unfortunately, World War I pretty much put paid to most of that, where uh, the combination of uh, just not enough people to maintain some of these huge greenhouses and the incredible costs of uh, fuel to keep them warm caused so many of them to crash. And by the, uh, by the 1960s, with the exception of uh, Japanese enthusiasts, they had just kind of fallen off the map entirely, with people assuming, oh, well, they're oddballs, we're going to leave to that. Most of the big boom right now is I can directly attribute to the Internet, because previously finding information and finding sellers for carnivorous plants was rather hard. There is a group that I cannot recommend highly enough, especially for beginners, called the International Carnivorous Plant Society, that started in the 1970s uh, but really started taking off in the 1980s as a source for available plants for people to pick up. But uh, about the time the Internet first really started becoming a uh, force, that was about the time a uh, very nice gentleman, uh, I'm very glad to be able to call him a friend, by the name of Peter Diamato put out a book called The Savage Garden. He runs a carnivorous plant nursery near San Francisco called California Carnivores. And he took pretty much every last bit of information he had, every last bit of information that he could get from friends, cohorts, and fellow growers, and put together this book, The Savage Garden, which to this day is still the definitive beginner's guide for raising carnivorous plants. It was my first guide, among other things. And it was only thanks to the internet that I was able to find out, well wait a minute, there are books available, and there's quite a few books available. But, uh, Savage Garden was the first one recommended, and I never looked back from there.
1: Wow. Romantic um, era, I think. Maybe maybe there's a lot of Victoriana coming back. But, you know, we have to go for our first commercial break here. But we will be back talking about carnivorous plants with Paul Crawford from the Texas Trivage range. We will be right back.
0: This is Michael Gannot with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out.
1: This is Tracy Pearson with Prissy Tomboy. Listen to the Prissy Tomboy radio show every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time as I interview special guests that will inspire adventure and fitness for females.
2: This
0: is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
1: Welcome back to the Master Gardener Hour remember you can catch up with us on Facebook at the Master Gardener Hour and if you miss any shows you can find archives at americaswebradio.com webpages you can find them on iTunes and you can find them on Stitchers and this morning we are talking about the wild world of carnivorous plants with Paul Crawford uh, the owner of the Texas Triffid Ranch in, uh, in Texas and Paul during the break you, you said that that a lot of animals sort of that usually have a problem in the garden whether it be rabbits and squirrels and deer and what have you um, tend not to like these plants Um, so what is it about these plants that maybe um, these other animals really don't like
2: well, it depends on these species. There are some, for instance, that will actually attract animals in a good way. Uh, the Asian pitcher plants, for instance, have a real thing about attracting tree frogs and lizards and uh, quite a few other uh, beneficial animals out there. I've watched uh, uh, praying mantises sit on top of the uh, traps all day long. You end up with spiders that uh, collect in the vicinity and will actually feed on incoming prey coming to the traps. And with uh, the North American pitcher plants, uh, when I first uh, saw them in the wild living in Tallahassee back uh, during the last decade, About two-thirds of them usually had a little green tree frog peeking out from inside. And most people seeing that for the first time would think, oh, look at the poor little frog there. It's been trapped. No, that frog can get out at any time. In fact, it's enjoying the fact that it has a regular food supply and a place to hide from predatory birds. And there are even some species that work even closer into a full symbiosis. For instance, a... uh, a species that was uh, a species of Asian pitcher plant that was only very recently uh, acknowledged as such is actually a very poor uh, trap for carnivorous plants where it used to be a trap for insects because of the fact that in its case, its pitchers actually act as a roosting site for one of the smallest bats in all of Asia. The bats actually roost inside. They're so small. They're maybe about the size of your first thumb joint that uh, they get bullied out of roosting sites by other bigger bats. So they roost inside of the pitcher, they have enough room for at least two of them to live at any given time, and their guano contributes almost all the nitrogen the plant needs for proper growth.
1: Yeah, and, you know, I I, I think um, this whole thing about carnivorous plants, you know, what they eat and things like that, Uh, but obviously... um, I I think goats and, I mean, goats usually eat pretty much anything. Um, So can they be actually used in a garden as, um, maybe if you're trying to protect something, um, can they be used as a a deterrent, maybe plant a few around the property edge and none of these animals will come in?
2: Well, I wouldn't quite say that, but what I can say is is that the the plants themselves Many of them will be left alone. For instance, uh, North American pitcher plants, the Sarracenia, are uh, that they, uh, don't have problems with deer eating them. They don't have problems with cattle. Uh, many uh, many uh, cattle pastures in uh, Florida have uh, huge collections of Sarracenia, partly because the soil is so low nitrogen from years and years of dairy cattle being raised on there, but also because they are that bitter. Uh, Two friends run a very good carnivorous plant nursery out uh, just outside of Portland, Oregon. Uh, It's called Saracenia Northwest. And they had a real problem with Himalayan blackberry here a few years back. And for those who aren't familiar with Himalayan blackberry, it's a very, very invasive plant in the Pacific Northwest. It's practically taking over. It produces huge brambles, sometimes the size of a house. They produce, these beautiful, big, uh, very tasty blackberries. But unfortunately, birds like them as much as we do, so the seeds get scattered everywhere. And the only way to get them under control is by digging out the rhizome, which is, well, kind of problematic when you've got a bramble beside the size of a house. Well, uh, Jacob and Jeff were relating that they were having a major problem with Himalayan blackberry out on their uh, nursery grounds. So they brought in goats with the idea that the goats absolutely love Himalayan blackberry, and they'd strip it all out. Their problem was that they were worrying what happens if the goats decide that they like the uh, Saracenia as much as they like the uh, the Himalayan blackberry. So they went ahead and they offered a trap to uh, one of the goats, and the goat spat it out. Just <laughs> sat there, looked at them, poof, and that was that. It had no interest in so much as trying a taste again. Do not ask me how I know how bitter they are. Please, I beg you, do not ask me. But it, it's a matter of that uh, anything short of a couple of uh, specialized mobs that live within their, uh, their native territory are uh, pretty much about the only things that will go ahead and eat ceracini uh, on a regular basis. I wouldn't use them as a divider to protect other plants, but what I will say is is that, comparatively, they are much, much more uh, pest-resistant than a lot of other plants I've dealt with. As well, you were mentioning with hostas there, where the deer and the rabbits will strip those down to the soil line, no, there, there's no issue there like that with uh, seraphenia at all.
1: But, so could you actually use them maybe as some form of natural pest control? If, you, if, you know, some, some plants in the summer, they get aphids, particularly in damp weather. Um, I mean, could you maybe strategically put a few of these plants around so the aphids go there rather than onto your plants?
2: Well, that's part of the problem. Unfortunately, uh, and I, I get asked this a lot. I, for instance, was asked by one gentleman, about being able to buy fifteen hundred fly traps, he was going to build a big berm around his house. Apparently, he had seen ants at the end of his driveway. He wanted to build a berm around the house and cover it with uh, with these fly traps, under the presumption that any ant that tried to come near his house was just going to fall into the traps and be eaten. And I had to explain to him, you do know that since these plants can't get up and chase the ants, they actually have to attract insects, don't you? He screamed at me, called me a liar, and hung up on me. But uh, the, the problem is, is that that's usually the first question people ask, is that well, whatever insect problem they have, and this goes everything from uh, let's see, from mosquitoes to, and I kid you not on this, I actually had somebody asking, oh, these are great, you have anything that will control bed bugs? The realistic aspect is is that yes, they catch insects. They won't necessarily control those insects. If they control the insects, then uh, Florida wouldn't have anywhere near as much of a mosquito problem as it does today. But uh, you can go ahead and use them uh, just to take advantage of uh, the fact that they will catch insects. But, for instance, uh, they can be affected just as much by aphids and mealybugs bugs and uh, many other uh, rather nasty insect pests as any other plant.
1: Oh, um, yeah. yeah. So, so they do suffer from some diseases then?
2: They do come down with some diseases here. Uh, it honestly depends on the group. The uh, bigger concern that I've noticed uh, more than anything else is uh, that the, they're reasonably disease-resistant, depending on the species and the genus we're talking about. But uh, the bigger concern is just making certain that they're in the right conditions namely uh, usually high humidity, decent air circulation, and uh, an understanding of their basic habits. I actually have a list online of uh, the eight surefire ways to kill your Venus flytrap. And one of the biggest ones that I keep seeing over and over is people who try to put them in a terrarium to keep them inside. Well, Venus flytraps are native to North Carolina. And I don't know if you've ever been up into uh, northern North Carolina up near the Virginia border. But they get snow, not huge amounts of snow, not all the time, but usually a a nice big blizzard enough to bury everything. So uh, the fly traps go dormant over the winter, partly because they don't have access to insects and partly because this is just preparation for being buried in snow. But they'll usually around Thanksgiving here in the States, they'll die back. In fact, a lot of people that I know will pick up fly traps around Halloween because, oh, it's a nice creepy plant. And they'll call me in an absolute panic by Christmas, going, oh, my flytrap is dying. What happened? <laughs> and I'll tell them, it's not dying. It's actually pining for the fjords. It's actually waiting until spring, and usually around the middle of March, they'll start to emerge. They'll start to throw off new traps, and then they'll produce this beautiful blue spike. Uh, the, the spike itself is usually about maybe a foot tall with these brilliant tiny white flowers at the tips. Wow. And then after the uh, effort's bloomed, then it'll start producing more traps. Uh-huh. So it's really not a matter of it dying over the winter as it is just simply, okay, no, it needs a dormancy period. And part of the problem with keeping them in terraria is that you have to give that fly trap that dormancy period every year. I know of people in Hawaii and even in uh, far southern Texas and southern Florida that if it doesn't get cold enough for their fly traps, They'll actually go ahead, pick them out after Halloween, wrap them in sphagnum moss, and put them in the refrigerator over the winter just so they get chilled enough to where they'll come back in spring. And if they don't get it, well, they might live a year, they might live two years, and then suddenly they'll, uh, they'll frantically bloom and then die. They've just become completely worn out because they didn't get that winter rest.
1: So, so how cold can they get? I mean, can they go up as far, far as zone, zone 4 or 5 or something like that? Well, the,
2: uh, the, there are quite a few species uh, that uh, live in almost arctic conditions. Wow. In fact, uh, the provincial flower of the Canadian province of Newfoundland and Labrador is the purple pitcher plant, Sarracenia purpurea. It can handle temperatures down to minus 40 and below.
1: Wow, mind you, they've probably, probably got somebody. snow. They've probably got snow cover up there, right? Which hel- oh, helps. Yes. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, Many of the many of the species that are uh, that see, that are uh, commercially raised can handle, I'd say, about zone four to zone five, so long as they're reasonably protected. Uh, that is, as far as temperate species, uh, Saracenia, many varieties of uh, sundew, many varieties of butterwort are already adapted to that, so that's not uh, much of a problem. The, the big defining line between carnivores are the temperate carnivores, which obviously uh, deal with the temperature extremes, and then tropical carnivores, which never deal with freezing temperatures. In fact, many honestly can't handle below 10 degrees Fahrenheit without going into shock and most of the time dying.
1: So so they act pretty much like nor- normal plants sometimes that, uh, you know, they, they just kind of g- give up when it gets too cold. Um, yeah. and, and I would imagine that particularly with... Um, uh, and the northern plants, I mean, there just aren't the insects to sustain um, something, a ca- carnivorous plant, because if it's relying on in- insects, and even if there was no snow cover, um, there just aren't the insects around in the winter to sustain it.
2: Um, oh, no, not during the winter, but the summer more than makes up for it. Yeah. Um, uh, in my case, I was uh, I was born in Michigan, and uh, the uh, mosquito was practically the state bird there, so.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, I I think we need to take another quick commercial break here. Uh, But but when we come back, we'll talk more about growing these coniferous plants with Paul Crawford. The Master Gardener Hour will be right back.
0: Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like.
2: This is americaswebradio.com, the best
0: in chat radio designed just for you.
1: You're back listening to the Master Gardener Hour. I am the host of the show, Kate Copsey, and this morning we're talking carnivorous plants with Paul Crawford, and now we're going to talk a little more about maybe growing the plants indoors and maybe um, some of your favourite plants, um, Paul. But let's start a little little bit about um, if we're we're growing them in a terrarium, you said that um, the... Venus flytrap needed a certain amount of dormancy. Are there some that we can keep indoors permanently in a terrarium environment?
2: There are actually quite a few of them that would do rather well. Uh, The the bladderworts are a big group. The uh, most people, well, the the bladderworts are a very interesting group of carnivores. They get their name because all of them have tiny bladders growing along their stems that uh, actually slurp up insect, and other uh, available prey. Some of those bladders can get to be big enough to be able to slurp up uh, things such as mosquito larvae. And these are ones that are completely aquatic. They pretty much have to be raised in a, uh, in a pond or in a pool. But there's a whole line of terrestrial uh, bladderworts that are available. In this case, these feed on microscopic soil organisms in moist soil. So all they really need is lots of light and uh, plenty of water. And if for those who are looking for something not only different in the way of carnivores, but looking for something point-blank beautiful, I can't recommend bladderworts highly enough because uh, many of them are tropical varieties. They will grow all year round, and the blooms in many cases are almost orchid-like. And you know, uh, one of my personal favorites is, uh, and unfortunately, I'm going to have to go with the Latin here because so many of these do not have common names, but Eutricularia sandersoni is a uh, very popular one, partly because it grows very well in containers. You could go ahead and just fill a uh, glass bottles full of them. And when they bloom, they produce a bloom that it has, let's see, it's blue and white. It drapes along the bottom and it has two ears popping up. As I like to describe it, it looks like an angry ghost bug. And people just absolutely lose it when they see these blooms because they're associating carnivorous plants with, well, Venus flytraps, and all of a sudden they see this spectacular bloom off of a uh, bladderwort, and they just completely lose it. And, well, truth be told, I don't blame them. But bladderworts work very well. There's an entire line of uh, bladderworts and butterworts are carnivorous in that they have flat leaves that uh, secrete glue on top that uh, attract insects such as fungus gnats and mosquitoes. They get caught on the top, and the plant digests them from underneath. There's an entire group of them from Mexico that are actually uh, very good as, well, not so much as hanging plants, but as in setting up a uh, large aquarium with a backdrop on them and letting them uh, sit in the backdrop. They'll go ahead and grow there very nicely. They're native to uh, to limestone cliffs, where uh, they'll go ahead and just grow in the cliffs. So uh, it's rather easy to go ahead and set up an arrangement for those as well. And there are also quite a few Asian pitcher plants that would do nicely in a terrarium arrangement, although many of them will get a little bit too big to last in there. When I was telling you about the uh, Nepenthes Attenborough a year earlier, those Pretty much need a full greenhouse to be able to grow them to any appreciable size, because uh, once they get to a certain size, they start to vine, and they'll climb uh, 40, 50 feet high <laughs> and uh, grow up into uh, tree canopies. And so obviously that's something that, well, unless you have a really big bathroom, you don't necessarily want to go ahead and raise the bathroom plant.
1: They would make a great – if you've got a greenhouse, though, that would make a great plant to put in there. (laughs) Um, Oh, yeah, Yes. Um, And and you said that they they need good light. Um, Is that direct sunlight um, in a sunny window, or is it more kind of an orchid that likes a bright room, but it's indirect light?
2: That honestly depends on the species. There are some that do very well under, under standard orchid lighting. There are others that, or well, like, for instance, Venus fly traps, that the more light you can throw at them, the better, the happier they are. And part of that is because the plant requires so much energy both to produce the traps that they use and to go ahead and produce the digestive enzymes they use for breaking down insects, that every last photon that hits their leaves makes all the difference in the world. Fly traps, for instance, are honestly at the edge of what ecologists refer to as their energy budget—the amount of energy that they expend versus the amount of energy that they actually take in. Which is why I tell people, as tempting as it is, as much as you'd love to do it, don't set off the set off fly trap traps with your finger, because each one of the traps is actually the leaf. The uh, presumed leaf coming off from the trap is the uh, the actual petiole or stem. And so uh, every time you close the trap, it requires marginally more energy for the plant to reopen again and photosynthesize again than what the plant would get off of uh, the nitrogen that it would collect. Or excuse me, it, it takes marginally more energy to open that back up than the plant would get if it had just been left alone. If the traps get closed every once in a while, for they're catching insect prey, that's fine. But you have so many people that have the temptation, oh, I'm going to drop a piece of hamburger in there, or I'm going to find a bug and I'm going to drop it in. And the uh, ultimately what happens is it's roughly comparable to holding you face down in the bathtub for half an hour and then wondering why you don't feel like dancing. The support plant actually practically suffocates at this point because it simply cannot pull in enough energy for basic photosynthesis, basic maintenance, because all of its traps are being taken up with uh, whatever happens to be in there. Even if it is just a finger that gets pulled out a couple of seconds later, it still takes a day or two for the trap to open back up.
1: And I think it is. It's a natural thing, particularly with kids, I think, that you'd want to touch it and see what it does. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
2: <laughs> Absolutely, now, yes. and that's why I've, I've actually got a very interesting alternative that uh, is now finally starting to take off. I'm I'm growing these myself. I was introduced to this uh, to this entire genus by a uh, very good friend up in Indiana that uh, is an absolute addict to these, and I don't blame them the slightest. And these are trigger plants. They're uh, a group of uh, genus Dylidium that are found uh, throughout the uh, southern hemisphere. However, it sporadically, but the vast majority of the species live in Australia. And in their case, these are ones you can set up all day for one very good reason. The uh, the trigger plants get their name because of their flowers. They have very distinctive blooms. Uh, they're uh, distant cousins to the asters. Uh, they have two large petals on top, two small petals on the bottom, and a little column that comes off at the top that looks a little bit like the hammer on a gun. And it works about the same way. When an insect lands on the flower, that column whips forward and hits it with pollen in one particular spot. As the, uh, if the, and then, uh, as the insect takes off, it'll gradually cock back over the space of about uh, 15 minutes to an hour and then go off again when another uh, insect lands on it. After it's been set off about seven or eight times, that column locks forward permanently, and that male flower is now a female flower so that any insect that's been to a male flower and has been tagged with pollen comes to the female flower, and the pollen is exactly the right place to be received. Now, since this is just purely involving flower, it is not involving the uh, the, the rest of the plant, you can actually set those off all the time. I had a friend that I demonstrated. Uh, one of the easiest species to raise is what's called the frail trigger plants, uh, Stylidium debiles. They uh, produce, let's see, they're a low, shrubby, almost uh, herby-type plant. They do very nicely in container, uh, in small containers. And they produce these beautiful, hot, pink blooms out there, tiny, just millimeters across. And they have one of the fastest movements in the entire plant kingdom, that you uh, you can watch the column back in its locked state and then see it go all the way forward and it moves so quickly, the human eye can't follow the entire movement. I had a friend holding a pot of these where I was demonstrating that to her, and she freaked out so badly over realizing she didn't see it move. She dropped the pot.
1: Wow. And a, t- a cer- certain movement for a, s- a slow-moving camera, maybe, to see how it works. <laughs> but, exactly, yes. Yes.
2: But uh, right now there are about there are 200 to 225 species known, ranging all the way in size from the little devils here, which are pretty much tiny, all the way to ones that grow the size of small trees. And, in fact, uh, some of them actually produce uh, – it's actually a little bit of a danger to set off the triggers or set off the columns because they can hit hard enough to draw blood. From what I understand, the Australian um, Ministry of Tourism actually has warnings for tourists in some areas. Don't let small children set off the trigger plants because some of the species could actually hurt them. But the vast majority of them, you you end up with this fast action there. So if you want to watch them as they're attracting bees, flies, other insects coming along to uh, pollinate them, that uh, you can actually watch them go off or you can spend the entire day going ahead and setting them off on an entire plant and it really won't hurt the plant at all. Great for winter entertainment. Very much so. And the nice thing is is that these are probably some of the easiest carnivores I've come across. That they're... Technically, they're considered proto-carnivores because while they can digest insect prey, they're only carnivorous when they're blooming. They actually produce sticky threads on their flower scapes that catch tiny insects, uh, such as uh, fairy wasps and uh, anything that would try to feed on the backs of the flowers. But uh, the rest of the year when they're not blooming, uh, they're about as carnivorous as a rose bush. The good news is is that many of these species, will, given the opportunity, will keep blooming. Uh, with Stylidium debile, I can't recommend it highly enough as a great beginner plant <laughs> nope. because so long as you keep it moist, it is almost impossible to kill off. Uh, about four years ago, uh, Dallas was hit with one of its worst heat waves ever, and I've been here since the heat wave of 1980, which was considered to be the worst on record. We actually beat our uh, record highs in uh, 2011. But uh, I had other plants that were just dying off left and right. There was actually nothing I could do for them. The heat and the dryness were just so intense. The debiles kept coming. That winter, we ended up having one of the worst freezes that we've had in the entire 35 years I've lived here. And I thought I'd lost all my debiles. They would frozen solid. No, they grew back from the roots. Again, so long as they do not dry out, they are almost impossible to kill off. And again, most people just thoroughly enjoy the fact that they they keep blooming pretty much all year round.
1: And I think people may maybe forget that um, being a plant, that they do have have blooms on them. And people are actively um, still developing new, breeding new varieties. Is that right?
2: Oh, yes. Now admittedly, compared to uh, rose or orchid products or orchid hybridization, oh, that the most carnivore propagation is at the, or uh, most carnivore uh, development is, oh, at about the level of where orchids were in the 1890s. But uh, it's a matter of that things are really starting to take off. Quite a few people are working with uh, hybrids of uh, Saracenia and uh, Nepenthes, coming out with uh, unique hybrids that way. And there are also plenty of new and interesting carn- or cultivars that are coming out. Uh, Venus flytraps alone, the last time I looked, uh, there were about 20 different cultivars, including ones that are completely bright red, ones with odd-shaped traps, ones with multiple traps on them. And that- these are just flytraps. Wow. Fly flytraps are kind of a one-trick pony <laughs> compared to so many other uh, varieties of carnivores.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and, and so I'm sure, sure it will catch up um, eventually to, to, I mean, daylilies, for instance, there are a 1,001. Yes, but, but, you know, we need to take our final commercial break here, but come back to listen to more about carnivorous plants with Paul Crawford from the Texas Triffid Ranch. We will be right back.
0: Hi, I'm Ray Bowman, hoping you'll join us each Friday at noon for our new show, Food and Farm, brought to you by FeedStuffsFoodLink.com, only on America's web radio.
1: Have you tuned in to the Master Gardener Hour lately? We have a brand new look. Come and join me, the new host, Kate Copsey, every Saturday at 11am on America's Web Radio. I hope you're enjoying the Master Gardener Hour this morning. We have been talking about coniferous plants with Paul Crawford from the Texas Triffid Ranch. Um, And Paul, do you actually sell direct from um, the the, the ranch there or or do you prefer to go outside um, of, of the ranch to sell it? These things. Well, in
2: my case, most of the plants that I'm growing are sufficiently big enough that it's it's not practical or even sane to try to ship them, mostly because of uh, postage costs. Uh, so in my case, I mostly stick with doing available shows yet throughout the, uh, the Dallas, Fort Worth, Metroplex area. However, I do uh, travel throughout the uh, state of Texas, and I do very highly recommend friends who have carnivorous plant nurseries where they're specifically selling for mail order.
1: And, and do, you, do you like to sell them to people that, um, you know, will, will treat them well? Um, and, and do you educate them when, and, and figure out if they actually know what they're buying before they, they buy it? Because you, you're doing a one-to-one trade, right? So if a, a ruffian little child came up dragging the mother and says, I want this, you'd give the mother the, um, the general education as to what to do and no poking the pitcher plant.
2: Well, the funny thing is, is that most of the kids who come to me are, in fact, the ones that are just really, really careful. Especially, uh, and this is a mantra that I hear over and over and over again, and I understand completely, is with the little kids that are almost crying when they tell me they had a fly trap but it died. And they didn't know why. They had no clue as to uh, what actually killed off their plant. And I'm actually able to go ahead and walk them through. And I can usually within three questions, I can figure out what's going on. And the first and foremost one is, this is somebody who used regular tap water on their plants. And in most areas, that's lethal for the poor fly trap. But again, they did not know. They never get the opportunity to learn. Nobody actually sat down and explained, All right, this is how you go ahead and take care of this plant. Once they understand those basic rules, they go crazy. And it's uh, it's honestly uh, thoroughly wonderful there. Not to mention, it gives the opportunity for the parents to be able to learn that much more. And so I'll end up with uh, I'll end up with five or six kids all around, just absolutely enraptured. And then I'll watch the parents' expressions and they'll they'll pretend that, oh no, no, I'm just here for my kid. No, no. They're they're there to learn as well. They just don't want to admit that they're there to learn. <laughs> and and for me, that's half of the fun.
1: And and there is a fascination with them. But I but I noticed as well on your um your webpage or your blog, I don't remember which one now, um, it was almost like you rented out a specific Plant to a, a lady in a store. How did that yes. that work? Well, what happened here was that uh, I had uh, let's see, I had quite a bit
2: of demand from people who want to have uh, one half carnivores, say, in an office environment or in a storefront environment. However, in their case, they're traveling often enough, and this is a situation with doctors, uh, dentists. Yes, big surprise, there are quite a few dentists who think that it's. Uh, the height of entertainment to have a uh, carnivorous plant in the middle of their uh, waiting room. Poor customers that are waiting and being reminded of the movie Little Shop of Horrors. Yes, thank you, guys. Thank you. But but anyway, uh, doctors, dentists, lawyers, uh, any number of professionals that may not have the time or the opportunity to be able to take care of their plants. So what I'm doing is a variation on uh, aquarium rental where – all of the, the general maintenance, the, the pruning, the cleaning, the feeding, everything else, I do. All they have to do is uh, sit back, plug in lights, and enjoy the plants. Oh, that sounds And awesome. uh, it started off with a friend, uh, Tiffany Franzoni, who runs a gaming store here in Dallas, who is on the road often enough that she would pick up plants from me, and unfortunately, well, her staff would forget to water them. So she figured what made a lot more sense considering that she may, might be on the road for almost three months out of the year, was to have me come in, make absolutely certain everything's going, report to her if there was an issue, if something was amiss, and otherwise make absolutely certain that that plant was in uh, top health. And so I've been expanding from there.
1: That sounds like a great service. And that that's just around the Dallas-Fort Worth area that you do that service, right? Yes, ma'am. And and so um, on your webpage, um, I... What else is is on the web page? Does it sort of, for instance, tell the shows that you're going to be at or contact nationwide, where if somebody was wanting to learn more or maybe go to a show, it it would show some of the major shows nationwide?
2: Well, that's what I'm getting ready to do. I had to take a year hiatus from from shows, mostly because of a uh, very bad freeze that we had at the end of uh, 2013. Unfortunately, it blew on a panel on a greenhouse, and I've been trying to rebuild my stock ever since because, well, when everything was well below freezing, a lot of plants that couldn't handle a week's worth of sub-freezing temperatures simply couldn't uh, handle it. And unfortunately, I had to wait until temperatures warmed up to where I could actually go ahead and repatch that panel. So uh, I've been rebuilding that. However, in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to have a complete listing of available shows and uh, lectures I'm, uh, in fact, going to be doing a lecture at about the time this show's running at the uh, Perot Museum of Natural History in downtown Dallas, showing off uh, various carnivores. The Perot Museum has a regular uh, arrangement of Discovery Days events, mostly for families, but pretty much anyone's welcome to come on out there. And I'm going to be showing off different varieties of carnivores, especially uh, varieties that most Americans have never seen before.
1: Oh, wow. And, and, you, and you just show pictures of those, or do you, do you actually have some of those actual plants?
2: Oh, I'm actually bringing in the, the actual plants. Oh, wow. Among other things, I've been doing a lot of work over the last several years with uh, many species that naturally fluoresce under ultraviolet light. They actually use that fluorescence to help draw insect prey. In fact, uh, for uh, folks who are in the Atlanta area, I very highly recommend going out to the Atlanta Botanic Gardens to see their huge carnivorous plant collection, especially if you can get out there at night on a full moon, because many of them are just absolutely stunning under a full moon. They'll actually glow under this, and in the process uh, attract moths and other nighttime prey that otherwise would be completely missed by most other carnivores.
1: Wow, that, that would be fun to go to. <laughs> oh
2: yes, but <laughs> yeah. anyway, no, I've, I've already got a reputation with uh, orchid and rose enthusiasts there of working on a uh, specialty system. It's effectively an inexpensive violet laser with a beam splitter. So effectively, I have made an ultraviolet laser flashlight. And uh, it's enough to go ahead and make the, uh, make the components on blooms and other structures that would naturally fluoresce stand out very well. Most people, for instance, have no idea that, or- that uh, aloe blooms will fluoresce at the tips, a brilliant, brilliant uh, hot yellow. In fact, that's part of the reason why they're so attractive to uh, sunbirds in uh, in their native habitats in South Africa, and hummingbirds here in North America. You you you,
1: but, you can you can see why why horror movies and things would be attracted to this plant. <laughs> it's just oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and and so. Um, do you, do you also recommend, you say you've got friends around the country um, where people can buy them. Do, are, are they generally available in independent nurseries or, or do we have to go to um, a specific gr- grower? Um, is it better to go to a grower rather than a nursery?
2: I would recommend going to a grower. Uh, there are uh, quite a few garden centers will carry some basics. However, uh, usually the selection isn't all that good, and it's nothing against the uh, it's nothing against the garden center. It's just what is commercially available. Unfortunately, carnivores are very, very slow growing compared to many other plants. So that, uh, the, uh, that the what would normally take two years to go ahead and grow a crop uh, or grow a, a standard uh, production line of orchids, for instance, can take as much as five years with carnivores, just because of the fact that they are so slow growing. But uh, that's one of the reasons why I very highly recommend going to specialized growers, partly because of the fact that they'll have a much wider selection. And secondly, they're also more than glad to help you pick the, the plant that you really want, as well as the best plant for what your
1: uh, level of expertise is. Okay. Um, and, and you say that you do talks. If somebody wanted um, to invite you to a talk, is the contact for that on your webpage as well? yes and and so they they would just just contact you and you and that that would be again around the um dallas fort worth area the, the atlanta thing uh, people from across the country couldn't actually use that right
2: uh actually i have no problems with traveling <laughs> it might be a little bit of an issue to bring plants but i'd be glad to talk and uh Anybody listening from Australia, I am
1: perfectly willing to lecture again. And and so so the the webpage is the texas Ranch dot is that right? Yes.
2: T-X-T-R-I-S-F-I-D-R-A-N-C-H.com. Yes, ma'am and and sorry it's it's an odd enough spelling I figured it wouldn't hurt to go ahead and spell it out
1: and uh, and i I think think on you've you've got the blog attached to that where you show some some of your great ones, but we've got about a minute left. I have to ask you about the cats <laughs> um yes. you you have a couple of cats on there um yes. do do the cats get on well with the plants? Oh
2: they, well, they they generally ignore them. That's the bright side. I have two cats that have no interest in messing with plants at all, which is perfectly fine by me and it's perfectly fine with them. But they are uh, they are such show stealers that I've uh, been asked. I was asked uh, several years back to start including pictures of them, and so yes, it's how many embarrassing pictures can I get of my cats to put up on the site?
1: So, so, so a lot of people actually go there for the cats rather than the plants. <laughs> They go for both. That's
2: the best part. I'll actually go to plant shows, and people will ask me, "So, how are Liber and Cadogan anyway?"
1: So, and, and they are. And one's an orange one, and the other one is a little tabby. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And um, and so, if somebody was um, starting their first collection, what would be the first thing you you would say um, that they should re- really do? Um, say, say they're in Minnesota. They want that they're, they're they're interested in start. Look, learning more about this, they want their, their own coniferous plant. What would be your first step to, to suggest to them?
2: The first thing would be to go ahead and research what exactly you want to do. Do you want to raise indoor plants? Do you want to raise outdoor plants? And then very highly research which plants would do the best in that area. The funny thing is, is Minnesota actually, by way of example, actually has uh, the purple pitcher plant that I mentioned earlier, Saracenia purpurea that grows in uh, some bogs in the area, they're already adapted to the cold. But with everything else, it's a matter of making absolutely certain that you have the proper conditions for them. Carnivores aren't very fussy, but they, they are very, very adamant in certain requirements. So make absolutely certain you're offering those requirements before you uh, actually buy the plant so that you aren't disappointed and the plant doesn't die.
1: <laughs> yeah um, and, and, that, and that, they, they, they would be wonderful plants um, but you know we're, we're at the end of the show uh, Paul uh, but thank you so much this has been a fun show and maybe we'll have you back around Halloween and we'll talk more about the glowing plants
2: <laughs> oh I'd love to thank you <laughs>
1: yes yeah. okay folks that's all for, we've got time for today thank you for listening to the Master Gardener Hour this morning we will be back next week with another show talking all about gardening and gardens have a good gardening week every week Everyone, and join me back here next Saturday.
2: This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio, designed just for you.